From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Animal agriculture creates more greenhouse gas emissions than all transportation combined. Yet, as individuals, we're often told you should take public transportation and ride bikes, all of which are good things, but not very frequently are we told, let's reduce our consumption of animal products, and that will have a tremendous impact on the environment. This week on the show, Toby Foster talks with the creators of Planted, a local plant-based food truck and catering operation in Bloomington, Indiana. We learn about their inventive plant-based menu and their commitment to sustainable practices. We have a pickled carrot recipe at the end of the show and more, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Earth Eats producer Toby Foster gets us started this week with a story about a new food business in Bloomington focused on environmental sustainability, animal welfare, and delicious food. A lot has changed over the last few years about the ways that we eat out, or perhaps more accurately, the ways we eat in. During the height of the pandemic, carry-out food was the only option that a lot of people felt comfortable with, and it seems that the trend is here to stay, heightened by the prevalence of delivery apps such as DoorDash and Uber Eats. In Bloomington, Indiana, a new food truck called Planted is trying to bring a new and thoughtful approach to carry-out, putting added emphasis on sustainability with an all-plant-based menu and avoiding single-use plastics altogether. They opened to the public in September of 2023, and I wanted to talk to them about their mission and about how it's been going so far. I was surprised when five members of their team walked into our interview meeting, so I'll just go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Ben Wessenberg, and I'm the truck manager. I'm Cooper Gerard, and I'm the general manager. My name is Nicole Schernemann, and I'm what I, the instigator. <laughs> I am Leah Wolf, and I am the head chef. And I'm Erica Yoakum, and I am food designer. Nicole, the self-described instigator, speaks first. I'm, I'm going to say a lot, and you'll have to cut out a lot. Okay. <laughs> Nicole owns a goat farm not far from Bloomington called The Goat Conspiracy. They offer tours, workshops, and even goat yoga. They have a mission that is focused on sustainability and animal welfare. Until recently, they also made goat milk soaps and cheeses, but Nicole has been moving away from animal products altogether, which is what led her to start thinking about a plant-based restaurant or food truck. Having that farm, I started realizing that there are gaps, sustainability gaps and animal welfare gaps that can't be closed. Animal agriculture creates more greenhouse gas emissions than all transportation combined. Yet, as individuals, we're often told you should take public transportation and ride bikes, all of which are good things, but not very frequently are we told, let's reduce our consumption of animal products, and that will have a tremendous impact on the environment. Nicole and a friend were both becoming more interested in a plant-based diet and found that they weren't seeing the types of options they were looking for in Bloomington. They actually contacted a national chain of vegan restaurants to see if they were interested in opening a franchise here. They weren't. So then we were like, well, why don't we do a food truck? Why don't we fill this gap? And that's kind of where Planted came about, was thinking in terms of, mostly in terms of animal welfare, but we really do need plant-based options here in Bloomington. Really good plant-based options. So thinking in terms of 
food that's locally sourced as much as possible, thinking about food being seasonal since it is locally sourced, thinking about sustainability in terms of what kind of packaging is used and the process of making the food, filling all those gaps, starting a business from start, thinking about what are the values that we want from the ground up. And so that's kind of how it started, was through this conversation and us deciding, well, why don't we think about a food truck? And I want to say that the truck, really from the beginning, in terms of its philosophy, is reducitarian. So the idea is that it's kind of difficult to get everybody to become plant-based, but something that could have a major impact on the world is if people reduce their consumption of animal products. So if we have food that's so good that meat eaters or people who eat meat on occasion decide they want to forgo eating a bacon cheeseburger and eat our food instead, that's a win. We're a completely non-judgmental truck. We want, and, we, and in fact, people on the truck, some people are vegetarians, some are plant-based, and some eat meat, and that's totally fine. It's not judgmental. Everybody is where they are. But the idea is really, if we can get people to reduce consumption of animal products, that's a win. As the idea for the food truck grew, Nicole reached out to Erica Yoakum to start developing a menu. Local listeners may know Erica as a founder of and head chef for many years at Feast, a well-known restaurant here in Bloomington. We just started brainstorming. I think we had several dinners at my house with trials of things. My cooking style is very intuitive, and I had kind of like a download of this idea for what is now the flat. And I called her, I'm like, let's, we have to change the whole menu because we kind of had a menu set and she was gracious enough to hear and entertain my, my latest idea. And so then we played around with this flat idea, which is like a chickpea base patty that incorporates different seasonal vegetables and kind of flavor profiles. And it kind of just grew from there. And then having the restaurant was a good way for me to like connect to all the farmers that I had known in the past from that to get local stuff and it just kind of evolved from that point to where it is now. After an initial menu was developed, Leah Wolf took on the role of head chef. Our menu right now is all of Erica's creations, but we've kind of collaborated on something. So it's kind of morphed. Um, some recipes are my own creations, which has been really fun. In the beginning, Erica and I worked and she kind of trained me in the everyday process. Yeah, I mean, and Leah, you really have like your own talents and she kind of has taken everything that I've done and run with it in a really great way. So definitely <laughs> has complimented everything that I've kind of started. And like, I feel like you just get the idea and have like created some crazy marshmallow that I just tried <laughs> yesterday that was so good. <laughs> We're going to get back to the crazy marshmallow in a minute but I wanted to hear more about the savory options first. And just to clarify a bit, the flats are sort of planted signature option. They're an open-faced sandwich served on locally made bread, followed by the chickpea flat, which is a patty made from a blend of chickpea flour and vegetables, and then topped with a variety of different toppings. The menu changes often, but a current big seller is the magnolia, which has local squash, leeks that have been simmered in white wine, and a sage pesto. It starts with the stock. For that specifically, I make a stock that has a lot of herbs and we try to use like all the scraps. So as I'm making the pesto, I'll save all of the 
bits of the sage and I'll throw that specifically in the stock for that flat. That way it just has, like like you said, all yeah. the layers yeah. that are just building. I feel like motivation for the food for planted was like big flavors because a lot of vegetarian food is just like plain mm-hmm. and boring and like you feel, I don't know, it just seems like not enough thought and intention gets put into vegetarian stuff. So it's just like the after food or I don't know if you go to a wedding, you're like get like steamed veggies and some mm-hmm. rice or something. And it's like vegetarian food can be just as flavorful. You just have to know how to. I think vegetables are rock stars and yeah. there's so much fun ways that they can be played with and changed and where you can't with meat specifically. Right. And then I guess also you were talking about how vegetarian, the vegetarian option is kind of an afterthought in many cases. I was particularly interested in how much of your menu is desserts or sweet things because I feel like that's kind of a thing that I often see as an afterthought on on menus is the desserts. So was was that somebody's specific thing that they were like into or how, how did that become such a big part of what you do? Well, I love ice cream, so it's because I love ice cream, I guess. We were going to make ice cream sandwiches and it just making them scaling up I was just you know practicing little ones for when we'd have our dinners but scaling up to something big and them not melting and it was a nightmare (laughs) (laughs) she had to do most of that nightmare I still laugh about it (laughs) it just was like we can't do this we just need to do ice cream we're not we're not done with the sweets though we got some more ideas (laughs) yeah can you tell me about the marshmallow yeah that was all you I myself am not plant-based but I do find it really fun and a challenge to make everything plant-based in my home. And so I came up with these marshmallows. I definitely was anxious to bring them to planted. And so we have something on the menu that is called chocolate elixir. It's a really deep, chocolatey, hot chocolate. So it starts with a homemade almond milk that is sweetened with dates. And I put some almond butter in there, so it just has a lot of depth and thickness to it. And it's melted down real chocolate. And then I make these marshmallows from whipped aquafaba. Then we toast them with a torch. Yeah, get that fun flavor. As strange as it sounds, aquafaba is the water left over from cooking chickpeas. Somehow it manages to have some of the same qualities as egg whites, and it can be used to make a vegan meringue or... In this case, a vegan marshmallow. After a short break, we'll be joined by Cooper Gerard, Planted's general manager, and Ben Wessenberg, the truck manager. Stick around. I'm Toby Foster. I've been speaking with Nicole Schoenemann, Erica Yoakum, and Leah Wolf from Planted, a plant-based food truck in Bloomington, Indiana. I was also joined by Cooper Gerard, Planted's general manager, and Ben Wessenberg, the truck manager, and I spoke to them about how the customer response has been so far. Ben speaks first, and then Cooper. The customer response has been really great. And not that that's unexpected, because Erica and Leah make amazing food, uh, and the truck is beautiful, so like people want to stop and see what it is. Fun fact, the images on the beautiful truck were designed by Aaron Toby, 
who also wrote and performed the theme song for Earth Eats. I think a lot of people think vegetarian or vegan food is supposed to replace meat in your diet. It's supposed to be like, oh, well, you miss eating a, a burger. Here's a substitute. But our food is not. It's not a replacement for meat eaters. It's just a new welcome addition to your diet that's that's completely different from anything that you're used to. And like, so people are, are so often surprised by what they get and they don't know what a flat is. You know, we, we do often explain what flats are. We have pictures on the truck so people can see because it's not a very common, you know, word to, to understand what it is food wise. So then when they get the meal, they're so often blown away by, oh my gosh, this smells amazing. This looks amazing. All of our food is very I mean, it's pretty, and that's on purpose, because it's beautiful food. It's all grown locally, so we want to emphasize how delicious and beautiful it's supposed to be. But I, I do think people are often surprised by just how different the food is and how good it is. And they, people often come back to me and they say, oh, my God, that was just delicious. That was so good. What was in that? What was in that? It's so exciting to be a part of that, because I feel the same way, you know, like eating the food for the first time whenever a new menu item gets introduced, I'm so excited to try it just because I know it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, it all kind of ties into the reducitarian, like, it's so much easier to be that to like reduce your meat consumption when there are such great options. So I can really see the our philosophy kind of manifesting in the real world and people choosing an option that doesn't contain any animal products, like Ben said, and loving it. And yeah, it's just really exciting and really fulfilling, and I love our customers. Mm-hmm. How will people find you, like, where you're at every day? Because you, you move around quite a lot, right? We do. Our Instagram is really active. If you find us on there, we post a weekly schedule and we post a daily schedule, usually with a picture of literally where the truck is that day. We're also, we have our website, and we keep the schedule up as updated on there as we can. Our Facebook is reflective as the, of the Instagram, too. And then we're also on an app called Street Food Finder, which it's a great way to find food trucks in your area. I mean, you don't have to live in Bloomington to use the app. It's, I think, probably nationwide. So we always post our schedule on there, and you can find the exact address of where we're going to be uh, and look a couple days in advance as well. It might seem hard to find us, but I promise there are many ways. <laughs> the truck itself is quite large, but I figured the folks at Planet still had to do most of their prep work out of a commissary kitchen. If you listen to the show regularly, you'll probably recognize the name One World Kitchen. It's a large commissary space where most mobile food operations do prep work, empty their wastewater tanks, and have access to cold storage space. I was curious about some of the challenges that working out of a shared space present for a new business. We're all brand new to the food truck thing, and that's presented a lot of unique challenges that we struggle with every single day. (laughs) But, you know, we only get better, and it only brings us closer, uh, for sure. You know, in a restaurant, your kitchen and your service happen right next to each other with the food truck. We're making food, taking it in carts, running back and forth between the kitchen and the truck and the walk-in and our storage and walking, getting our steps in, get, walking, uh, you know, getting a mile in before we even drive the truck out. I commend every, every single person that does it. It's a labor of love getting that food out to the street and out into the community to serve the customers. but. We really do love it. (laughs) Part of Planted's mission is to source food as locally as possible, and they change their menu seasonally. 
I wanted to talk to them about some of the farms they sourced their ingredients from, and how certain ingredients have inspired new menu items. Here's Erica. Definitely the farmers and what they have available and is the main motivation. And if they have like a lot of peppers or something, we I think we got like, I don't know, Cooper, you got maybe 30 pounds. One day we just all sat around and processed peppers for a hot sauce for later or froze apples for a jam that will be used later. So the produce definitely will and is dictating the menu. And like your latest um, caramel sauce that I tried, it was acorn squash maple, maybe? You sweetened mm-hmm. that one? Yeah. To go on the cinnamon ice cream. So that was genius. I love that you used oh, the acorn squash in there. You wouldn't know, though. I mean, it's like thick. It makes it seem thick like caramel. I don't know if you would like be like, oh, there's squash in this. It's just like, this is so good. Yeah, it's a great use of squash. The group estimates that about 80% of the produce they use is local. Some ingredients obviously are not available locally, such as chickpea flour, coconut milk, and olive oil. But Planted has a large list of local suppliers, which is not an easy thing to do. Here's Cooper. One thing about the local farms and stuff is that their selection isn't always a guarantee. For big farms, you can just reliably get however much you need, but this is a constant puzzle of what's in season and who has an abundance of what, and that's always changing, and we're always looking for new items and new sources. And here's Nicole to talk about another aspect of the food truck that we haven't touched on yet, which is that they do not use any single-use plastics. It seems like they were struck, as I was, by the amount of unnecessary styrofoam, plastic forks, bags, and napkins that have started piling up as more people have started ordering takeout. We just decided we didn't want to do that, so all of our containers are compostable and non-plastic. We have a a planted mug that people can reuse and get a dollar off their drink. You can bring anything. Bring any any reusable cup cup that's clean, you get a dollar off every time. Yeah, but we do have our own in case people want to buy one. And we're going to make t-shirts. We're going to have just just for the staff for now, but they're all going to be t-shirts that we own or from Goodwill or something, and we'll have like our logo put on those. So we're not printing up new t-shirts. So we really do try to think things through in terms of sustainability and our impact on the I, earth. I could add one quick thing about like customer reception to single use, no single use. Like Nicole was saying, customers always expect to get styrofoam and a plastic sleeve of fork and a knife and a salt and pepper or whatever. Like we, the the truck workers, we call them truckettes, and we all kind of joke that forks are a secret menu item. You have to ask for a fork if you want one, just because you don't technically need a fork to eat our food, and we don't need to be giving a fork to every single person. We we even ask if they want a napkin, because some people are like, no, I got one in my car. We often encourage people to. Nicole always encourages people to bring silverware, put it in your glove box in your car, and that way wherever you go, you can have some silverware when you get there, some napkins when you get there. So. It's been good. People, you know, people are picking up on that. And I often have people who are like, nope, I got it all. Thanks. So it's really encouraging. That was actually the original idea with making sandwiches was that you wouldn't need cutlery at all. Mm -hmm. But then they're big and like have sauces and everything. So we do have, are they the the wooden or bamboo or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even the the cutlery that we hide and give out (laughs) stingily is... uh, (laughs) not plastic. We also compost everything that we can compost. So we bring it back to our farm and feed to the chickens there. 
Yeah. From the commissary and from the truck, both. Yeah. Compost, yeah. As I'm writing this and watching freezing rain coming down outside my window, it's hard not to wonder how a food truck will get by in the colder winter months. You know, we're new to it, so we really don't know what the what the rhythm is of, of owning a food truck or working on a food truck. And we are really, we started mid-September, which is kind of when everything is slowing down. Planted hopes to supplement their business during the winter by exploring some catering options. We are hoping to break into catering probably by mid-January. We're going to be having a small sit-down dinner where we're going to sell tickets for this, hopefully, so we can try out some of these recipes that we're hoping to break into the catering, which will feature, I guess, winter produce. Some ideas that we've come up with are some chocolate balsamic roasted beets over a cashew ricotta on a in-house focaccia. We have several dessert ideas. We're gonna do ginger bread cookies, a fresh ginger ice cream, and halva snickerdoodles, a tofu mousse, butternut ravioli yeah. with your cheese sauce, with wolf cheese sauce. Cheese. <laughs> Can you tell me what the, the base of the wolf cheese is? So I make a couple different cheeses and it kind of just depends on the purpose of them. One of them is a coconut milk based. We call it the kim cheese because it also has some kimchi in it and then um, also some miso in there and that one has a little tapioca in there so it gets a little stretch when it's melted down and then I make a cashew based cheese that's fermented for a couple days and that's what we call I call it the spread me cheese I think they call it wolf <laughs> wolf cheese but I like it to call it spread me cheese <laughs> I call it kimchi's wolf cheese do you? yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> If you're wondering why the truck doesn't use any of the goat cheese from Nicole's farm, the goat conspiracy, well, that's actually part of what led to this whole thing in the first place. One thing I realized is that cheese is not vegetarian. Like, I think a lot of people think it's vegetarian, and I thought it was vegetarian. And part of it, very, very small part of it, is the kind of rennet. That traditionally cheese has been made with animal rennet, and you can use vegetarian rennet, you can use uh, plant-based microbial rennet, and that's what we use. So for a while I was calling it vegetarian cheese, but the process of making cheese entails getting the animals pregnant, and if animals are pregnant, they have babies, and at a certain point something has to happen to those babies, because otherwise your farm grows and grows and grows, and you have a bunch of animals on your farm that aren't productive. So I would say almost all dairies, if not all dairies, slaughter their animals, which I think makes cheese not vegetarian. Our goat farm, we have about 150 goats and only about 30 of them are milkers. So that you can see, like if you stop sending animals to slaughter or you don't send animals to slaughter, you have a very kind of economically not viable business. Naively, when I started, I didn't realize that. Um, I remember early on thinking, you know, we were building our herd and the goats are growing and growing. And I'm like, we still need goats, but we'll figure out later on when that continues to double and double and double. We decided with breeding season we weren't going to breed anymore, and so we're going to stop doing our cheese and our soap. We're not going to be milking our goats or breeding our goats anymore because of sustainability really 
issues and the animal welfare issues that I talked about. It's an interesting take on the issue and one that I have rarely heard brought up, even though this is a topic that is often on my mind. Since I recorded this interview, the goat conspiracy announced that they have milked their last goat and will be caring for the remaining animals on their farm, but not using their products. Thank you all again so much for taking the time to, to come in and chat with me. And um, yeah, look forward to trying more, more things off the truck. My guests were Cooper Gerard, Nicole Schoenemann, Ben Wessenberg, Leia Wolf, and Erica Yoakum, all from Planted, a new food truck based in Bloomington, Indiana. You can find a link to their website, along with more information on where to find them, their new catering options, and some photographs at eartheats.org. Toby Foster is a producer on our show. Next up, we have a story from 2019. It's about strawberries and the troubles facing the industry that brings bright red berries to our grocery store shelves year-round. What could go wrong? My name is Julie Guthman. I'm a professor of social sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Julie Guthman is a food scholar whose work has had a profound effect on much of my thinking about alternative food movements. Her 2011 book, Weighing In, challenges common approaches to the so-called obesity epidemic and has pushed me to examine the limits of interventions such as school gardens and farmers markets in transforming our food system. Julie Guthman visited the IU campus and gave a keynote address at a conference called Critical Approaches to Superfoods. I invited her to the studio to talk about her recent work. The talk I'm giving is called The Problem with Solutions, and it's really motivated by this tendency I've seen, um, certainly in the tech industry, um, but also in kind of low-tech versions of efforts to transform food. It, so it reflects on this tendency to um, have solutions guide the problem. So we're seeing um, so many people come up with solutions that are politically palatable or um, excite them from farmers markets to drones to monitor fields and and go looking for kind of problems to be solved. So I have a, a new research project on agriculture and food technology. And I've been going to all sorts of events where entrepreneurs are looking for venture capital to fund their inventions that, that are about new food products, new new products to help farmers farm. And I'm c constantly struck about how little some of these entrepreneurs seem to understand about the nature of food and agriculture. Her latest book released this summer is on the strawberry industry in California. The the strawberry work, um, I'm, I'm very excited about it. I just completed a book. It's called Wilted, Pathogens, Chemicals, and the Fragile Future of the Strawberry Industry. And it's, um, it's a culmination of maybe five years of research on the California strawberry industry. And what this book does is address how it is that the strawberry industry became so wedded to the use of highly toxic soil fumigants 
and how that use of fumigants ramified throughout the rest of the industry, making it really, really difficult to change. And, and it's animated by the problem that the, one of the many problems that the strawberry industry is facing that the chemicals they've long been using are now facing tighter regulation. The issue with these chemicals is they were first introduced to address a suite of soil-based problems, nematodes, weeds, but mainly soil-borne pathogens. And these pathogens early on in California's strawberry industry were hurting growers. They were seeing huge um, waves of blight where they were losing lots of crops. And the University of California got involved in trying to support farmers to address these pathogens. And they first developed a breeding program. But sometime in the late 50s, they started experimenting with various fumigants. And they use a combination of methyl bromide, which used to be a fire retardant, and chloropicrin, which is tear gas. And they, they found that a combination of that addressed the pathogen problem. And those two chemicals in combination became the uh, treatment of choice to address soil pathogens and weeds and much more. But methyl bromide is an ozone depleter and has been taken off the market because of the Montreal Protocol on ozone depleting substances. And chloropicrin, um, they're still allowed to use, but with much tighter restrictions. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that so much of the way strawberries are produced has been developed with the assumption of the availability of those two chemicals to be available. So for instance, strawberries, we often think of it as a seasonal crop, like in most parts of the country where they grow strawberries, to the extent they still grow them, they may be available in the market for three weeks. Mm -hmm. But California strawberries are in the market for nine to 10 months of the year. You know, there's certain regions in California where you can grow strawberries or you can be harvesting strawberries for at least six, if not eight months. And you can do it year after year. And those fumigants allowed growers to grow them year after year on the same block. So one of the things that happens is land values become calibrated on the assumption that you're going to be able to fumigate and and harvest those strawberry plants year after year after year. So strawberry land values are very high, making it very difficult to pay rent unless you're getting that kind of yield. In addition, there's the qualities of land that are really good for strawberries, include um, sandy soils and the highly temperate weather of the coast of California. So most of the strawberries are grown within about three miles of the coast. It's cool in the summer because the breezes come off the, the Pacific Ocean. We call it the natural air conditioning of the Pacific Ocean. So summers are actually cool and foggy right by the coast. And so for the strawberries, it's eternal spring. And so they, because they don't do well in super hot weather. Right. So you have the advantages of that particular climate are great for the strawberries, but it's also where people want to live. And so there's a lot of suburban development in these same areas. And so that's also putting pressure on land values. Then another issue you have is that plant breeding has been done with the presumption of fumigation. Mm -hmm. So even though the first plant breeding activities were to try to develop pathogen-resistant varieties, once there was fumigation, they no Mm -hmm. longer had to do that. So they started breeding for size, for color, for shipability, mm-hmm. um, so they wouldn't perish. Um, for uh, I mean, size and color, presumably that's what consumers want. They didn't breed much for taste, except for <laughs> certain varietals. But now you have this problem where w- there's these regulations, and you can't fumigate with the same the chemicals that have the same efficacy. In addition, there's been new pathogens appearing that hadn't been there before. So they they really need to find some pathogen-resistant varietals. 
but they've lost some of the original germplasm, like the ancient germplasm that might have been more beneficial. So the strawberry genome itself has changed in, in relationship to the presumption of chemical fumigation. The strawberry genome itself has changed in response to the prevalent use of chemical fumigants. Before you go racing to the grocery store to stock your freezer with those giant, red, nearly flavorless strawberries, stay tuned. After a short break, we'll be back with Julie Guthman to get her sense of how urgent the strawberry problem really is. We are back with Julie Guthman of UC Santa Cruz, talking about her research on strawberry growers in California. How immediate is this problem or crisis or whatever you want to call it for the strawberry industry? Are they having to make these changes right now? Or are we not going to see as many strawberries on the shelves? Like, what's happening now? And how quickly do they need to move? And what kind of solutions are coming up? Well, that's a great question. The strawberry industry is facing a number of crises. It includes tighter regulation. It includes these new pathogens appearing that they don't really understand. It includes labor shortages. And Mm -hmm. strawberry growers complain about labor shortages more than they even complain about fumigant regulation. It includes high land prices and land scarcity. And it includes low prices for strawberries. So there's a lot of things bearing down on the strawberry industry and the strawberry growers like to complain and they do about all of those things. Already this set of circumstances, strawberry growers are leaving. I mean, there's in the past few few years, there's been reductions in acreage. So people are like, I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. So that's already happening. Um, Now, the kind of solutions, so here we go back to the (laughs) solutionisms, so the kind of, but there, this isn't solutionism because there it actually is a problem and they are looking for solutions. Yeah. So the solutions at hand really vary in terms of what, who will benefit or be hurt by them. And they range from finding and, and getting approved through regulatory bodies less toxic replacements for these chemicals. Mm. That's what the strawberry industry most wants because it wouldn't really change up what they do. But so far, none have been developed that California's Department of Pesticide Regulation is willing to accept. So much of the research is in non-chemical alternatives or, or so, I mean, some biological pesticides, too, they've been looking at, but again, none are really ready to go. So they're, one thing they're looking at are non-chemical forms of fumigation. So like steam, steam can kind of work, but it's expensive. You have to have steam machines going through, and it's very slow. They've also looked at solarization where they just put on plastic, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's not hot enough. Oh. So it work, I think it works in Israel in really, really hot climates, but it's just not hot enough there because you need to have a lot of heat to kill the pathogens. So the main thing they're looking at has been um, in the non-chemical treatments has been this thing called anaerobic soil disinvestation, where they flood the fields with water and also add a, a carbon source like rice bran or molasses and cover it in plastic, and apparently that creates so much activity that it drowns out the pathogens. Wow. but it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, but it's had mixed results. I mean, so far, no one's really brought it up to scale of, like, several hundred acres. They've done it on a couple acres. And it's also, like, it's not chemical, which is good. It's not toxic, but it uses a tremendous amount of plastic and water in a drought-scourged state. We just had a rainy year, thankfully, but 
you know, lots of water is not good for California. And it's not even clear, like, the rice bran and molasses, where that would come from. And that could be grown under very toxic conditions. So there's that one. And they're also looking at soilless substrate. This is a really interesting one. This is like not taking strawberries quite into greenhouses, but as of right now, they're putting soilless substrate as a medium for growing strawberries. So it could be coconut coir or peat moss, but it does it's not fertile soil. And they put it in waist-high trays, which is good for the harvesters. They don't have to bend over because strawberries are picking. It's really arduous. Crummy so it's, it's creating a, another soil environment that's not... That's not soil. But it's still outside. It's, it's not, not so Right. Because that's it, the, the thi- climate is great. Because <laughs> the climate's great. So that's exactly the thing is like there are people now growing strawberries in greenhouses. Like New Jersey has a, a huge greenhouse operations for all sorts of fruits and vegetables. But the California growers are not so excited about greenhouse operations because their biggest competitive advantages are the soil, even though it's now diseased, and, and the weather. Climate, so right yeah. now, they're, they're experimenting in the substrate, but these this expensive infrastructure. Yeah. And so there, so there's that. And then the third, the third um, obvious possibility is agroecological techniques, like using rotating strawberries with broccoli. Broccoli has mild fumigation qualities, and cover crops, and compost, and, and many, there are organic growers that successfully raise strawberries in these integrated systems, but they're not growing strawberries on the same block year after year. Right. And their strawberries are minor crop. And so right. and so you can't, they have to find cheaper land or they have to find consumers that are willing to pay a lot more for these strawberries grown in those conditions. Now, some in the industry are like, you know, aren't so concerned about these things. They're like, yeah, it's going to cost more and it's fine, but it's going to shake out all these people who really don't know what they're doing and those of us who really know what are doing that are the most technologically sophisticated will rise to the top and that'll be fine and we'll just get higher prices, which we want anyway. I think one of the social justice stories here besides the work, which is significant, is that some of the newer growers are Latinx growers who were, were former farm workers or former field managers who've gotten into deep debt to grow strawberries and those are the ones that are turning over year after year, ending up with lots and lots of debt. So a shakeout may be good in terms of for some growers, but it, there will be consequences for people who have tried to get into the strawberry business with a lot less capital. Where has this work taken you in terms of your own critical thinking about food systems and where this all fits into some of the other work that you've done? I mean, if I look back at all of my research, I think that I find myself really drawn to paradoxes and contradictions and impossibilities. Um, and maybe that's the outcome of having a actively critical mind. But I also think it's really reflects what I see on the ground. And I think that there's so much in food. I mean, I mean, food has gotten is galvanized so much public attention, and you know, there's food studies and food, food shows and food popular books. We know food is pervasive as like a, a, an object of interest, and I think that there's, I think there's, just, I don't know if it's an expectation, but certainly a hope that there's like easy solutions to everything, and and there's really just not. And I think that a lot of my work has been empathetically critical of alternatives 
as a way of addressing food systems. By that, I mean, I've been, I want to emphasize, empathetically critical of, you know, the farmers markets and the alternative food institutions and the community gardens and the farm to school programs as not doing enough to address the problems in the food system. They show us other ways of producing food and other possibly other ways of consuming food, but they don't fundamentally undermine the worst sorts of industrial food. And so my project on strawberries has really hit that home for me because I think the agroecological techniques of growing strawberries are important to know about, and it's important to have techniques that will work. But we can't get there unless we fundamentally undermine what is causing growers to continue to fumigate, et cetera. And it includes land values. And it includes um, research and extension systems that aren't really developing integrative sci- science. It's, it's It includes so many different things. It includes huge wealth disparities. Mm-hmm. So I keep on coming back to the same problem in o- almost all my work in that we cannot really change the food system until we change until we fundamentally address the the pervasive problems of inequality and insufficient regulation and much more in in the world writ large well and this is also an interesting project because it's come about because of regulation like there was some successful regulation right. that right. happened right. in exactly. this industry that right. is what you want and then here's Here's but, what it looks like on the yeah, ground. But the good news is it's it's forcing growers to have to rethink what they do. And so that's how powerful regulation can be. So it's important. But then you have to you have to develop the tools too to farm in other ways. But even though even if these tools are coming available, like we have the problem of land values. We have the problem of, of consumers' expectations of cheap food and not because they're dumb, but because that's the economic realities in which they live and that they can't with low wages they need you know, cheap food is one of the ways that they have more wages. So it's so you can't you can't escape those realities. And so while we it, those of us who work in food and agriculture need to be certainly thinking about how to address the specific problems, you, we can't kind of move away from really thinking and acting on the bigger social structures. We can't move away from thinking about the bigger social structures. Julie Guthman never fails to look at the bigger social structures. It's what's so powerful about her work. We'll share the second part of our conversation in another episode, where I ask her about her groundbreaking work in challenging the ways in which the good food movement jumped on the obesity bandwagon, and how misguided some of the approaches have been. In the meantime, we have more information on Julie Guthman and her work at eartheats.org. Spring is just around the corner, and with it comes early spring produce like radishes, peas, crisp lettuce, and fresh, local strawberries. In the meantime, we have a recipe for a vegetable that actually improves with cold temperatures. So today we're going to make pickled carrots. You could call it a taqueria-style pickled carrot. That's absolutely not authentic in any way but it reminds me of the kind of carrots that I used to get at the taquerias in Houston when I lived there. And they would just sort of have them in a jar on the table and they were so good. And I used to eat so many of them with chips. You know, when you get there and you're really hungry and you're waiting for your order and they've got this chips and salsa and these 
pickled vegetables on the table. And I just, I mostly remember the carrots. And so when I left Houston, I was looking for a recipe that would taste something like those taqueria pickled carrots. And so I found this one. I'm not exactly sure where it comes from. I feel like it's from a blog from a white guy in Texas, but I have been using it for years. It comes pretty close to satisfying the craving for those taqueria-style pickled carrots. I grow carrots in my garden every year. I usually grow them in the fall and then they kind of stay in the ground over the winter and I harvest from them throughout the winter. And I've got some in the ground right now and I'm gonna go dig some up, hopefully. It is very cold outside. It's, well, it's not that cold. It's 29 degrees. I'm gonna go out there. It's dark, but I'm gonna go out there and see if I can dig up some of these carrots. Oh, I should probably grab some gloves. see in the carrot bed I've got some netting over it to keep the deer from eating it and I've got some straw over it and looks like the straw is doing its job of keeping the ground from being completely frozen solid Ooh, and I got a really nice big carrot out of the ground let's see if I can grab another one. Oh yeah all right well I've got a couple more in the house so I think this should probably be enough these are huge Ooh, it's cold out here. Let's get inside. You definitely want to peel the carrots first. The recipe calls for two pounds of large carrots peeled and sliced to a quarter inch thick, about three cloves of garlic peeled and smashed, one half of an onion sliced, one and a half cups of white vinegar, one and a half cups of water, 10 bay leaves whole, one tablespoon of peppercorns, one tablespoon of Mexican oregano, one and a half teaspoons of salt, and a few fresh jalapenos sliced. Mm. And these carrots are so good. When you grow them in the winter, after the first frost, they really do become sweeter. The way I understand it, they concentrate their sugars into the root. And it just makes them taste so good. It's really worth the wait to grow your carrots in the fall and let them stay in the ground until after the first frost. Carrots really do well in cold weather. I've got some pretty small onions here for my garden. So we're gonna add the garlic and the onions to some oil in a large saucepan and we're gonna heat it up and saute it and just until it's fragrant and then we're gonna add the carrots. 
I'm going to put two tablespoons of olive oil into this saucepan. The onions and the garlic are fragrant, and now I'm going to add the carrots. Then we're going to add one and a half cups of white vinegar. And we just want to add this carefully so it doesn't splatter. And the peppercorns and bay leaf. Salt. And the Mexican oregano. So we're going to bring this to a simmer and let it cook for about five minutes. After the carrot mixture has simmered for five minutes, then it's time for the water. And the jalapenos. And then at this point we can simmer it for another five or 10 minutes kind of up to you on how firm you want the carrots to remain. I like mine more on the crisp side, so I'm probably going to stop after a few minutes. And that's it. Just let that cool to room temperature, put a lid on it, and stick it in the fridge. And these will keep for months and months. These will probably keep until the spring, so it's a great way to preserve your carrots. I love to eat these especially on tortilla chips. They're so good. So that's pickled carrots somewhat taqueria style. I hope you'll try it and I hope you enjoy them. Find the recipe for pickled carrots on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Alexis Carvajal, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Julie Guthman, Nicole Schooneman, Cooper Gerard, Leo Wolf, Erica Yoakum, Ben Wessenberg, and everyone at Planted. Earth Eats is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Mm-hmm.